You're listening to Some Pulp, a Sunrise Robot Show. I'm your host, Bruce Edwards. Some Pulp is a retrospective on media and consuming media in the mid-20th century, based on my recollections and uh, childhood and early adolescent experience of uh, media in the analog and then uh, eventually digital forms that uh, I got to experience over time. In this uh, second episode of Sun Pulp, we'll be exploring the phenomenon of the Western as a popular genre that ruled the airwaves of uh, mid-century television programming and storytelling, much as it had done in the previous decades for the medium of film. What we want to look at is the nature of the Western, both in prose and in cinema, and then eventually in its uh, TV form, and how it translated from the large screen to the small, and uh, eventually it faded almost entirely from, uh, from both media. During our time, uh, I would like to explore three distinct TV programs from the late 50s and early 60s, one called Gunsmoke, another called Bonanza, and a third known as Maverick. These were three of the most dominant and popular programs in American TV programming that were ever produced in this era. Uh, I'm joined by our uh, moderator and interrogator, Michael Edwards. Hello. And uh, here we go. Most people have experienced the Western, uh, either directly in actually viewing a film or a TV program or a stage play that uh, brings forth the uh, themes and characterizations and locations of, uh, of the Old West. And it's usually referred to as the Old West because the New West looks like everywhere else, buildings and highways and skyscrapers and uh, all the modern and contemporary conveniences that uh, don't evoke any sort of nostalgia for the past. But, but by their very nature, that's what the Old West or the Western uh, happens to, to generate, nostalgia, because it's a time that few people actually lived in because in many ways it didn't even exist. Most of the Old West stories we hear are exaggerations. And uh, maybe that's a, a place to start with some general discussion of the Western. Mm-hmm. Well, I was interested by what you just said about um, at its heart, Westerns are kind of nostalgic because by the time you get to the the middle of the 20th century where we have all these Western TV shows, are we a hundred years out from anything recognizably similar to the time periods they're talking about? Like, you know, civil war era is about as late as you get before we start getting more and more modern in our cities. So at the very outset, these are nostalgic shows. These are set in the past. They're set in the past and and they revolve around some distinct uh, historical events. The gold rushes of the uh, mid to late uh, 19th century where people uh, in their California California dreaming period are looking for riches and uh, take stagecoaches and wagon trains and head west. Uh, You know, the popular uh, uh, text-based game of the uh, 
80s and early 90s, the Oregon Trail was really a kind of narrative about getting out west from the east. And the east is the the old new world, but the uh, new new world, the west, starting from Kansas and moving further west, uh, is really the uh, the wild and undiscovered and predominantly uh, Native American populated territory. And uh, people uh, who wrote about it, uh, wrote about it to draw people to the West uh, so that uh, through taxation and other kinds of uh, development, uh, the West could be made uh, livable and profitable and uh, industries and, and everything from cattle uh, farming and, and cattle ranching and farming, uh, just literally to uh, have the staples of life, uh, could be maintained. Otherwise, uh, most of the Old West stories are based upon the traditions and established uh, mythologies of the people who occupied it, including those from uh, Mexico, the, the uh, inheritors of the, the Spanish traditions, from those conquistadors and conquerors, and of course from the Native Americans. So the people moving west from the east were uh, pseudo-sophisticates who are coming to civilize something that they don't even know anything about. And uh, therefore the stories tend to be uh, uh, roped around uh, certain kinds of characters and certain kinds of expectations for what they'll find. And indeed, if they don't find it, they help inadvertently to create it. And so conflict and rivalry and uh, a familiar theme of, of the Old West is there's not enough women out here to have marriages and families. And so we've got to import them. And so the so-called mail order bride uh, becomes a familiar trope. And, uh, uh you know, later on in the 20th century, uh, Broadway plays like Seven Brides for Seven Brothers is, is just that sort of evocation of an era and a time that, uh, you know, maybe didn't exist. It's certainly not in volume. Uh, I don't know how many mail-order brides there ever were, but if there was just one, it it <laughs> lingered as a story to be told and retold. And, uh, and of course, that's just one of, of many tropes that are uh, out there about uh, the old west. Well, I'm interested to hear what, what what you have to say about these three particular shows themselves, but also the western as a genre, because there is some degree of the, the standard hero story, whether it's the reluctant retired sheriff that gets drawn in to to do one more good deed to save the town or to right some injustice, or um, and some of these other things that where the western is could almost be seen as just the scenery for the standard hero tale. But what does the Western bring that that's a different riff on what we might see as the standard? Well, there is the standard one, the the hero. And, of course, uh, writers like Joseph Campbell have dissected the hero in uh, lots of cultural settings. But the Western hero is the reluctant hero the, the righteous man, the, the man who wants to do right by him, his fellows, by his family, uh, who's drawn into a conflict. Now, if he becomes a kind of a permanent fixture, this hero becomes indeed the sheriff or the judge. Uh, 
um, or the 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 reverend, the you know the the non-denominational righteous man on the on the uh, uh, dusty trails of uh, of uh, these uncharted uh, territories and so forth. But uh, the the uh, true Western hero reluctantly is drawn in, and then you know shoots or. Or, or, or is involved in a fist fight, uh, primarily for the sake of uh, the good and the uh, true, and uh, you know, it almost seems like in in many westerns the law is being made up as as you go along, and so whether certain things are uh, wrong, like cattle rustling, uh, uh, which is not a an issue most. 21st century people ever have to think about. <laughs> yeah. It's uh, it's not, you know, common theft and it's not theft to, to you know, uh, feather one's uh, legacy for you know, one's children. It's it's actually a business. And so cattle rustling as, a, as a, an incident or a problem, uh, although it dominates, uh, you know, horse thieves are hung in these stories. And again, it's not that... Uh, we care less about thievery, but we we don't put as as strong uh, a moral value on certain kinds of, uh, of behaviors, and uh, so this hero is is somebody who is uh, reluctant, but nevertheless uh, resolved uh, when. He's called upon, and by called upon, I mean when no one else will do it. Uh, he he will be the one to uh, to register what's what's right, and uh, if he can bring the, to- the the town along with him, if he can bring a few of the cowhands into it, so that they want to fight for what's right, uh, all to the good. Uh, you know, the side uh, uh, category is the uh, the military category. And before the Civil War, the, the U.S. Army, U.S. military, were there to protect the new settlers and often against the uh, people who actually do live there, which is the Native Americans. And they're often seen as heroic if they fight for the right to uh, assimilate. <laughs> and so it's, you know, in, in I would say later, that's, that's one of the reasons it's very awkward and strange for the Western to survive much further into the 20th century as it does, because there becomes a recognition that uh, usurping other people's lands and property and and uh, destroying their traditions uh, as a, as usually a peace loving uh, uh, people uh, is is somehow not uh, not very conducive to one's self image as a you know a free and noble country. And uh, as a result, I, I think uh, many of the, uh, the 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 tropes and the themes and the mythologies uh, kind of die a quiet death because nobody wants to hear that kind of story anymore. Even though there are stories sprinkled in with um, you know friendships between uh, chiefs and their braves and so on and so forth. Well, it does seem like uh, when you get to Clint Eastwood and, and newer and, you know, in the seventies and beyond that it is less about the grand mythology about the, you know, our, our outback as it were, our, our, our crazy Western unsettled, uncivilized, however, whatever language of imperialism you want to put on it. But, um, right. That 
it kind of shrinks down and stops being about the big grand narrative of justice in the West and it's way more focused on individuals. And so Clint Eastwood is just one guy and you just, you, you offended him too many times and threatened him too many times and he finally has to respond or, you know, becomes way more localized telling smaller stories in my mind. Right. Yeah. The, the grand, um, uh, spectrum of uh, uh, farming and, and homesteading and just surviving. Uh, I'm thinking of a 1972 film with Robert Redford called Jeremiah Johnson, uh, which he is the uh, rugged individualist who heads west, particularly northwest, and uh, you know uh, life is cruel and and uh, creates all sorts of conflicts. Uh, in inside oneself as well as with the uh, community around you, but he just wants to be left alone, uh, and you know he has a Bowie knife, and uh, you know he he knows how to you know chop wood and uh, kill a bear and that sort of stuff, and he he uh, he's sort of uh, the new Western hero uh, who joins forces with the new heroes in police drama and courtroom dramas and so forth. Uh, but he's new because the Western has always been about uh, uh, putting uh, townships together and weaving together this, this lawful and uh, progressive society as, as we move further west. Uh, because the, the, you know, there's the Tin Horn character, I'll just throw this in, who usually has come from New England and has book learning, doesn't know how to carry a gun, shoot a gun. And, of course, that's the epitome of, of, of what a heroic Western character is able to do. He, he, has, he, he can uh, fight with his fists, and he can also pull a gun if he needs to, or a shotgun. This guy from Boston who gets off the stage doesn't know any of that. He doesn't know what it's like to live as a Western man, and, and of course, uh, a majority of the of the Western men that these stories are presumably drawn from, they didn't know how to do any of that stuff either. I, I read a I read a quote this morning to to uh, think through these that the uh, the wild wild west was not particularly wild. In fact, it, it, it was comparatively boring. And so, newspaper writers and, and editors out east needed to to uh, ratchet up the violence and the danger and the in the sense of uh, a threat, uh, even more than was there. Not that there weren't things like, you know, terrible uh, snowstorms and blizzards and and um, you know wildlife that you know snakes and so forth. Those those are there. That's that's true. But you know, uh, the, the the Hollywood development of the Western theme uh, was not based upon you know factual research and so forth it was to take advantage of those so-called dime novels that would make uh, make the old west vibrant and uh, again keep people moving west and Horace Greeley's famous for come west young man you know because there's where adventure and uh, wealth and glory uh, await frontier yeah the frontier and uh, but uh, w- one thing i think needs to be said is that uh, the, the medium of the film dictates, uh, and particularly the silent film, dictates how broad uh, of a stroke that the screenwriters and film 
producers had to uh, to deal in because uh, literally at the start you knew who was good because they wore a white hat and and you knew who was evil because they wore a black hat and they may had may have had uh, a dark mustache and not usually a beard because a beard was a hard working man of the of the soil and so uh, you didn't attribute beards to something evil but you did the twirly mustache sort of fellow who's uh, uh holed up in a saloon and maybe he's a a card shark and so forth or uh, some sort of flimflam man and so forth and so these broad broad themes are drawn visually to black and white and and I suspect we we get our concern about things aren't always black and white from those early films that pervade culture and begin to adapt the, the uh, vocabulary of, of it. So where do you see Maverick and Gunsmoke and Bonanza fitting into this? this? Yeah, yeah. Let, let's start with uh, Gunsmoke because it's the oldest in some ways. It started on radio and uh, with, with some of the same characters who appear in the TV show and uh, you know, uh, the, the, there's the uh, the Western writer Zane Grey, uh, whose uh, whose name is sort of associated with a certain kind of uh, Western, and uh, he's he's writing these dime novels uh, early in the 20th century, long long before you know radio and TV are there to uh, to extend these storylines. <clears throat> but Gunsmoke is the, in some ways, I would treat it as as the original. Western for TV consumption, and it has the stock characters that you come to expect. And if they're not there, you think somehow this this is not a complete Western because um, Marshall Dillon, who is played by uh, James Arness, is uh, the uh, last outpost on the edge of law and order and and. Uh, Sanity, really. He he helps in so many ways, week by week. Not just fighting or staring down the gunslinger, but he's helping the farmer uh, ward off uh, the uh, nefarious uh, land baron who's come because he thinks there's oil on the land or something, and uh, he adjudicates that for them. And if it comes to gunplay, he will he will engage in it, and. Uh, these characters kind of come and and grow and and you know appear before us as almost like family members. I mean, Gunsmoke uh, ran on TV, I think, for almost twenty years, <clears throat> and uh, as a result, you know, on, again on uh, on CBS, which was and it still does have this this reputation of being the network of relationships. And so, after ten years into Gunsmoke. You, you care more about the characters and what they do or don't do in a certain episode than you you worry about the the toll of uh, of uh, shooting deaths or or uh, in, in you know town invasions and so forth. But so so Gunsmoke is the staple, standard, predictable kind of of uh, storytelling. About fifty four minutes, you know. Six minutes of commercial, so it's it's long, and the narrative is sustained, oftentimes with lots of of uh, dialogue that extends the relationships. It doesn't further the plot exactly, and um, 
many other uh, uh, rivals on the other networks tried to dislodge Gunsmoke from its its peak. And one that comes along to uh, displace it is this family drama called Bonanza. Bonanza takes place in uh, the mythical uh, Virginia City, Nevada, and uh, it's uh, a widower named Ben Cartwright, and he has four sons. Uh, and uh, a lot of men. They're, they're growing up. And uh, you, and since there's four of them, five if you count Ben himself, that's five different people to weave stories around. And so, in a 26 or 32 episode uh, season, that's uh, that's about one one or two episodes focused just on one of those characters, and then you know many more about the family, the clan as itself, and they're they're you know virtuous men of uh, of great. Uh, Agility. Uh, they can do law. They can do cattle. They can do shooting. They can do dancing. Uh, they can uh, they can perpetually be uh, courting uh, the the young ladies of the territory. And none of them ever, until the very last few seasons, get married uh, because I think they would they would they would not know what to do with certain kinds of storylines because that's yeah. almost not a western anymore and, and Bonanza gets as close I think to not being a western by later in its series than uh, uh, than the police shows that that uh, come along. I did manage to watch a Bonanza episode on YouTube and it was a kind of a, a bottle episode where they were stuck in a prison the entire time and uh, there were riot the pr- the prisoners rioted and kind of took control and took hostage of the the patriarch um the right. the dad and it was up to other people on the outside to figure out you know it, there were no SWAT teams at this point um right and so the at the climax of this episode you have Michael Landon blow open a door with dynamite and then he uses a gatling gun and just fires at the walls and makes everyone get down and lay down but he, there's just like you know a good 30 seconds of him you know wiping back and forth across the room uh, uh pulling on or, or cranking the the gatling gun and it's kind of it was kind of hilarious to me to watch but so bonanza was also the first like full color show right Right, right, and uh, uh, that, that's that's a tremendous innovation that uh, NBC sort of pioneers uh, the the Technicolor TV broadcast, and of course, few people in America in the early '60s had color TVs. They were enormous, uh, you know, tremendous. Uh, uh, appliances. I mean, they, they they filled up the room, and usually, the uh, the, the TV set was accompanied by a, a, a hi-fi monaural record player and radio set, and so that takes up most people's living rooms. Uh, you know, un- unlike uh, some of the uh, depictions of, of mid-century American life, most people did not live in enormous houses. They lived in you know, a typical living room, a dining room, and then whatever bedrooms are there. And, and so the TV would literally be the center and, and maybe take up all of the room. Uh, and in, in, in my case, uh, speaking personally, we did not get a color TV, I think, until maybe 66 or 67. 
And so, you know, as a family, I was an only child, so three of us are watching television for eight to ten years uh, together and never knowing what it would be like to see a TV show in color. So even though it was broadcast in color, you know, it just showed up in black and white in your in your living room. Um, and so you have shows like uh, Disney, The Wonderful World of Color. And so it's not even a show about a particular set of of themes or characters, it was about color. Yeah. And, and whatever, you, you know, whatever you watch, it doesn't matter. It's in color. <laughs> and, and so a lot of those, those, uh, Disney early episodes, they weren't narratives at all. They were pictures, uh, you know, live or, or, uh, captured, um, uh, motion pictures of the Grand Canyon or some place w- where, uh, you would never have, uh, Visited because, uh, you know, in the early 60s, America is still not a very mobile kind of society. And uh, uh, a show we might talk about later in the in the Some Pulp series is Route 66, a, a TV program that really introduced the rest of America to uh, far-flung places in uh, uh, New Orleans and, and San Diego and uh, Seattle. These are places people have read about but they probably literally have never seen it. So anyway, to get back to the point, um, the colorful Western that Bonanza represented had a whole new audience that that had been uh, sort of triggered into uh, uh, the narrative by the virtue of its color status. Uh, so if you'll watch Disney to see a documentary about the Grand Canyon, you'll probably want to see something a little more dynamic and interesting and character-driven. And so Bonanza was that. And it wasn't just the old Western with uh, fights between cowboys and Indians or between rustlers and farmers and, and so forth. Uh, these are, are real dramas that are, are kind of characteristic of what other families in the modern era, in the 1950s and 60s, have going on in their households. Not because they have horses and... Uh, and sharpshooters in their in their clan, but because they're about the everyday life of parents or a parent in this case, and uh, these took their their place along shows like Father Knows Best, Leave It to Beaver. Only it was translated into a little more exotic territory, uh, and uh, you know there, there are other things going on in, in American culture. Uh, about the same time, but there was something reassuring about the fact that there's this transition Western called Bonanza that's not just about horses. It's not just about the uh, the drunken coward who has abandoned his family uh, and uh, uh, you know is thrown in jail. Like in the old Andy Griffith show, there was a stapled drunk guy who in Mayberry, you know, said of the modern era, you know, would, would come to the jail because he got a good square meal and he got over his drunkenness overnight, which is, when you think about it, really kind of an absurd trope. Um, and yet it's it's that transition between how do we get from the Western to something more modern and that's about the things that we're facing and that our children are facing and so forth. So it's it's kind of a rough transition until Bonanza comes along. And uh, again, many, many of the things you would expect to see, there are gunfights, there are fistfights, you know, there's a trip to the saloon, 
but it's still not really focused on that the way uh, an episode of Gunsmoke might be. Now, throw into it now this crazy, flippant, uh, undermining, iconoclastic series called Maverick, which, uh, you know, as far as I could tell, they invented this term, Maverick, because now, now we associate it with the trickster and somebody who can outwit you with his uh, savvy uh, logic and social skills and so forth. Or unfortunately with politics now, too. <laughs> oh, yeah, yeah, sure, yeah. Um, but uh, James Garner originates this role. And although over its seasons, uh, James Garner drops out of the series, the first two uh, seasons of Maverick are among the best that uh, television, I think, could ever produce. I mean, to me, Maverick and a show like The Twilight Zone, which also plays its part in uh, being iconoclastic toward the Western, there were numerous Twilight Zone episodes that had something to do with undermining one of these tropes. Um, because Rod Serling was a television writer himself and had written some westerns and and uh, he sort of knew how to how to undermine his own sense of uh, of uh, westernality, if you will. Yeah. So Maverick comes in to kind of turn this all on its head a little bit. Yeah, and he does it by playing against type. Um, he plays the uh, what I call the pseudo coward. He doesn't want to fight with anybody. He's a card playing. Not card shark, not somebody who is deliberately cheating, but he's he's very good at cards. He's a poker player, and he's a in in his demeanor is that of a poker player too, because you can't read him, and he'll never reveal his secrets, so to speak. And so every episode, I would say, almost invariably attempts to undermine one or more of these typical Western tropes. And sometimes they rise to the occasion of deliberately and directly satirizing. And in a case in point is a satire of Gunsmoke, which appears um, pretty much close to the end of the first season called Gunshy. That's the episode title. And uh, uh, James Garner as Brett Maverick comes into town and sees this very placid, uh, unlively, uh, uh, and very stolid sort of town. Even though they've got the saloon, they've got the marshal, they've got the dock who's there to take care of everybody at all time. Uh, you know, if, if you want to find a healer, go to a Western doctor, because he seems to know how to do everything. And, of course, later in television history, um, that trope of the male doctor is undermined itself uh, with the uh, the country doctor uh, that uh, this, uh, I, I knew I was going to forget her name, the actress who plays her, but... Uh, oh, Dr. Quinn? Yeah, yeah, Dr. Quinn has, you know, a good 10-year run as the anti-Western doctor yeah. uh, because she, she knows how to do things only with great style and and uh, bedside manner that the gruff and uh, Doc Holiday kind of character you know doesn't possess. I did there to. Um, I did manage to stumble in my browsing of Bonanza episodes. There was an episode where a criminal was injured, and 
this doctor was playing this, you know, it was almost more like the healer or the, the minister because he was insisting that he will heal even this criminal man and will not just hand him over to <laughs> whoever wants to bring him to justice. And it's like, and they, there was the actual line, I'm a doctor. I heal everyone. <laughs> and it was like a, a known metaphysical truth of doctors as they don't get involved in anything except just healing people. Well, and, and you, you may hear the echo in that, the, the sort of thing that Bones, uh, not today's Bones, but the one on, on the original Star Trek series, um, says, you know, he says, damn it, I'm a doctor, Jim. You know, he says to uh, Captain Kirk, in one of his episodes, he's not a scientist, you know, or, or he's not a he's not a Spock-like character. Yeah. And so he uh, he's uh, again echoing the old Western, and and that's part of the transition for American TV audiences. They won't take it straight anymore. They don't want to see another family drama Western, but they'll see it in space. And and Gene Roddenberry was was a genius for seeing that. Uh, overlay that he could put in space. And, and, of course, later on, I think George Lucas does the same thing. But uh, the, the the thing I want to underscore about, about uh, Maverick is, in some ways, it's James Garner's character in everything he ever plays or does in Hollywood. And so in some ways, it's unfair because he always is that debonair, suave, crafty, trickster-type character in whatever he plays. And, and later on, he plays a role called uh, Jim Rockford for the Rockford Files. And it's really just a, a recreation uh, set in Malibu in the 1970s uh, of the same Maverick character. And it was endearing in Maverick. It's endearing in, in that particular uh, series as well. And what they have in common is the producer of Maverick is Roy Huggins. He's also the producer of uh, the uh, Rockford Files. But uh, uh, what I think is amazing here is that uh, even though this is a well-established genre, the Western, there were creative people in Hollywood and, and receptive uh, advertisers as well as as viewers in 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 America, who were willing to deconstruct that particular genre, and and want to see the other side of it, and and want to take it apart and and see what what really makes it it work uh, as satire, and so it's not too long. I mean the the you know the movie industry is about thirty or forty years old as we get into the fifties. And uh, already in the new medium of television, you've got different kinds of writers and actors and producers who who are willing to uh, be iconoclastic and and uh, uh, you know, irreverent uh, toward that that hallowed uh, image. And of course, Clint Eastwood does it in his own way uh, in a series called Rawhide. That's also uh, contemporary with Maverick and with uh, Gunsmoke and Bonanza. Uh, so, so there's a there's a lot of history embedded in the storylines that that are not uh, about the West. They're about how American culture is actually changing and evolving as we move into the 70s and, and later 80s. 
and uh, a different kind of violence that's that's stylized differently than just a smoking gun. And uh, I, I think it's it's kind of an interesting uh, phenomenon to to look at. I know it had its uh, impression on me, uh, even though I didn't know it was having this effect on me. I was beginning to be credulous toward the kinds of plots that are thrown at me uh, on on the airwaves. And and you know, almost within five minutes, I'm saying to my mom uh, during an episode. Um, you know, see what they're doing here, Mom. They're 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 uh, you know uh, defying our expectations. And this this sheriff isn't really a sheriff. He isn't really a good sheriff. Uh, he's something better than that. He's he's undermining the values of this uh, yuppie culture that's emerging in the West that they want us to see. And uh, I, I think that's that's worth our time sometimes just to put ourselves back into that particular genre uh, in an uh, anachronistic era to, to uh, rethink even what's, what's going on today in, in uh, television. Yeah, I wonder where, where you would look in today's television for the equivalent. And I do want to pause, though, for a second and comment on the production style of these shows. And maybe this is one where... While we are noting all these differences between Maverick and Gunsmoke and Bonanza, there's an, an overwhelming of their era-ness, too, between all of them that, to me, just growing up in the 80s and 90s when music video editing kind of takes over the entire universe and now nothing can be cut without there being a new shot every two seconds, no matter what show you're watching. You know, it's always rapid fire moving around, showing you different things. And stepping back into the middle of 20th century television, um, it, it just feels way more like a stage. Everything's a stage. There's a play being delivered in front of you. You know, there may be two or three minutes without breaking the shot as characters enter and exit and, and have their conversations. And almost nonchalantly, I, I've noticed across an entire Bonanza episode, people will just walk into scenes and it's not a big deal. They are a main character, but they aren't introduced with the close up. They aren't here to deliver some news to the main character. Um, whereas you watch a show like, I don't know, The Mentalist or, or, or Bones, if someone steps into a room, it's because the scriptwriter had to have them step into a room because they needed to deliver something to advance the story or the plot. And there was just, it just felt so much more slow, um, if I can say slow with no inherent value for or against that, that, you know, they took its time. Sometimes the conversations ramble on or, or go off on tangents. And modern shows are, are so tight. They're so... They're they're written so tight, they're cut so tight, because they're they're always on they're they're trained on rails heading straight for where they're going. And I know I can't speak universally. There's obviously shows that um, do some different things, but I just stylistically the, this era of television felt more like a stage play. Yeah, no, I think you're I think you're right, and uh, and you know the techniques of cinema filter back into the techniques of writing teleplays and uh, the kind of thing you're uh, uh, identifying there. Uh, we could think of many more, but, um, you know, I, you, I think you would say of the 50s and 60s that revolution was already being prepared for 
in terms not so much of the of the uh, camera angles or pauses or close-ups and and such. Although uh, you know there, there's there's plenty of that being experimented with. Uh, it really is still to get a story told uh, at at a pace that that is more still tied to uh, the financing, uh, the the advertising of the show, than it is uh, the sake of the story itself, and that goes back to radio days uh, as well, and uh, ratings determine everything and so forth, and uh, that was even more truism, I think, in the 50s and 60s than it is today with the you know, proliferation of channels and cable-delivered, satellite-delivered variety uh, that uh, I don't know how any particular episode can be tracked because you can watch it at your leisure. And unless there is a dial or a you know some, some kind of register, the old, the old Nielsen, we were a Nielsen family for, for about six months, and we, we wrote these detailed uh, TV guide-like uh, charts out to, to show what we watched, how long we watched, and if we were willing, even when we went to the bathroom, which we didn't do very long. I mean, we, we didn't... <laughs> being a Nielsen <laughs> family is, is oppressive because you're basically... You know, writing a diary of your life because uh, you know then you start thinking, I really like this show and I want to make sure it's still on, and I hope it lasts a long time. So I'm gonna, I'm gonna say I watched this intently and never got up from my seat. Yeah, you know, it just just weird sorts of thoughts come into play. Uh, you know, they're 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 a kind of uh, uh, screen test or or uh, you know focus group. Uh, only in reverse uh, at that time, but I think I think the, the, the key here is the sixties, particularly, are a transition period where television is becoming a main medium and not a subsidiary medium to film. Although film is still packing them in and, and still can get a blockbuster show. Um, and I, I just want to mention that you know Butch Cassidy and the Sundance Kid is sort of the epitome of the anti-Western, and it's sort of you know you know maverick written large with uh, Paul Newman and, and Robert Redford, and they they are undermining every trope about if he's a Western hero, then doesn't he have to be heroic? And yeah. maybe or maybe not. Uh, anti-heroes. Maybe, yeah, yeah, they're either anti-heroes or they're they're elusive. They're they're heroes at times uh, on on someone's behalf, but they, it's more like they will play the hero in in terms of the of the screenplay. But they they are aware, and so is the audience, that they're temporarily playing that role. But most of the times, they're just. Uh, uh, hedonistic uh, self-aggrandizers, presumably the way most of American society wish that they could be. <laughs> uh, and the reason that that film was was such a hit, uh, and it, although it actually grew in stature over time, was that it, uh, it it played with the scenes and scenarios and landscapes of westerns, but it didn't tell a western story. It told an American story about how people presently would like to think of themselves in their lives. They want to be the rogue 
the the kindly maybe the the uh, uh, dastardly rogue, but mostly the the innocent rogue who who wants to achieve something for himself and his loved ones or his girlfriend or, or his son or whatever. Um, but he's not there to to do anything of a, as a role model for anyone, and uh, I, I think that's that's a significant change. So I'm wondering: is one of the questions we we had discussed um, was does the Western have a future, or where where do we look? Like, do we have to look to sci-fi and fantasy for any of these kinds of stories now? Or um, I mean, we we there's no shortage of Western you know, lowercase at least, films that are coming out. I mean, we have Django Unchained, we have True Grit being remade by the Coen brothers. Um, you might say that No Country for Old Men would fit into this. But right. are those Westerns? Um, what are those? And are they indicative of still is there still being an audience for this? Or have we moved somewhere else? Yeah, well, they're at least Westerns in disguise, uh, even if they don't turn out to satisfy any of the rules of westerns, and and I'm thinking of something like Justified on uh, the you know FX channel. Uh, obviously, uh, this was a, a character uh, that uh, Timothy Oliphant plays that, in some ways, is derivative of the Deadwood character he played for HBO. Uh, in which he he doesn't take anything from anybody, and you got to push him. But when, once he hits the the uh, the needle on a, on a you know across the uh, the spectrum, he's ready to take you down, and he will do it. And so the old West is in Kentucky, Harlan County, and the you know, success of that show, the popularity of that show, particularly in the first three seasons, uh, where people talked about you know. Uh, uh, Raylan is going to have his Hulk moment where, you know, he's finally going to be pushed to the point where he's going to shoot somebody. People waited for that. They, they were excited about that. And they would live through a lot of very clever dialogue between uh, Raylan, the, the U.S. Marshal, and whoever the, uh, the adversary was, uh, because that was clever too. Uh, but that, that great point of of uh, release was when he shoots somebody now <laughs> as as it's moved into i think the last season now season five there's probably not as much shooting as there was at the beginning but it still has those elements and so i, I do i think justified is a western yes but you know not at all in the in the um, older genre and uh, tropes uh because it's much more explicit, it's much more uh, graphic in how it tells the story, uh, and uh, you know, which again is is not uh, different from what Clint Eastwood does to to create the Dirty Harry character, who's a San Francisco policeman, but he 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 runs his life and executes his authority. Uh, with a gunslinging mentality of the Old West, which, of course, as an actor, he was already part of because he helps create the spaghetti Western, the Italian-made, brutal, very violent Western made in Europe uh, once the Hollywood studios started shutting down the Western machine. And, uh, again, with, with Justified, 
I would certainly add serenity, uh, Josh Whedon, uh, where you marry the spaceship and horses. Literally. <laughs> yeah. yeah. So would you... Would you describe Captain Malcolm Reynolds as a, a maverick kind of character? Absolutely, absolutely. He, uh, in fact, when when I look at uh, uh, Firefly, the uh, the TV version of the of the movie Serenity, um, I see so much of James Garner uh, in in his character, and, and I what I what I think about that is, you know, I would love Nathan Fillion in anything, you know. He, he, even though I don't think the plots are particularly inventive or interesting in Castle, I'll watch it because I love the character he is. And the same thing with with uh, uh, James Garner. He gets to chew uh, a lot of scenery for sure. He does. He does. And uh, you know, everything always leads up to, well, what do you think, Castle? Or what do you, th- you know, Malcolm? What you know? What are you gonna What are you gonna do? And uh, he is the fulcrum on which the rest of the plot. Turns and uh, so the the Western uh, capital W has definitely been uh, uh, retired, so to speak. Although, again, with uh, with a remake of like True Grit, um, you know, I think we should mention the Lone Ranger, the Johnny Depp version, which, uh, in retrospect, was actually I think a pretty tremendous movie. But it was almost too good in evoking th- uh, both the filmmaking of the early Western era and in the, uh, again, the juxtaposition of the uh, uh, Westerner and, in this case, the Tonto character of the Native American. Uh, they go to great lengths to ingratiate the uh, American Indian culture into the movie but people weren't ready for it and couldn't put it together and couldn't really enjoy it. Uh, and so, uh, you know, it, it was written off as uh, tired, uh, too too long. I mean, it had explosions. It had ex- yeah. exciting train um, uh, derailments and... It had torture. <laughs> I mean, it had it presumably all the all the elements that uh, you know the contemporary audience thinks is necessary, but it didn't all fit together. Yeah, and uh, and I think you know, fifteen or twenty years from now, people will come back to that movie and say that it was uh, it was the the uh, evocation of an era of filmmaking that that didn't work in its time. But uh, if it had played uh, as a an HBO series or something, it probably would have been accepted because of the the, the connection. Um, it seems like they they had a lot of they had a lot of trouble getting it out the gate. Because um, yeah. I remember it was advertised for at least two years before they finally released it, and just yeah. I think there might have been some real world struggles just putting this film out. Sure, but and you have to admit that. Because the Lone Ranger character is so ingrained, even if we've barely seen episodes in the past, we we do remember something about it. And this Lone Ranger doesn't play up to those standards, which is usually a good thing. But it was like they were disappointed he wasn't the hero. Tonto was the hero, which I thought was great. Yeah. And uh but at, at any rate um oh I'm reminded of you know you mentioning how much in the consciousness these these stories and shows were um we were playing the uh, the board game Cranium 
And uh, so with cranium, you're asked to either do charades or sing or draw something. And I was tasked with getting my partner, which was my brother, Justin, to guess the Lone Ranger by singing or humming. And I proceeded to hum the Bonanza theme. And so, <laughs> ding, 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 ding. And he goes, Lone Ranger. And so <laughs> this was a, a literal case of two wrongs make a right. We were both wrong about the theme song and that caused our success in this game. But um, it was just a hilarious moment and also the blurring of, yeah, it's one of those old Western theme songs, right? <laughs> yeah. yeah. And uh, similarly, sometimes uh, the Magnificent Seven was a remake of The Seven Samurai, which is a great uh, is that Japanese. Kurosawa? Yeah. But the Magnificent Seven has gunfighters, and it's in the Old West. And uh, that theme is often mistaken for the Bonanza theme when it appears as well. So, <laughs> yeah. Uh, which which Western had the? Uh, ooh, 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 wah, wah, wah. I don't know. I can't whistle right now. <laughs> oh, that that's one of the spaghetti westerns. That's, yeah, it's a, uh, is that a good, the, good, the bad, and the ugly. Which, Probably. of course, gave, as a film title, gave us a phrase that's now pervasive on uh, ESPN. Yeah. We're going to get the good, the bad, and the ugly, you know, and uh, those those three qualities. But uh, I think what would be fun, and we probably don't have time in this episode, let alone the preparation to properly represent this, is to also see how Looney Tunes plays into sort of mocking all of these things we're talking about in their own way. Um, sometimes just with one little sight gag that appears for three seconds, but it'll it'll call out to. I can think of tons of Western tropes that end up n- not even with, whether or not Yosemite Sam or is part of the the cast. Um, definitely, definitely the 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 two people lining up to shoot at each other in the street um, shows up constantly. Well, and and there's actually a, you know an industry tie there because uh, that's a Warner Brothers production, and Warner Brothers was the biggest producer of westerns for tv on the back lot of uh warner brothers in Bur- burbank which is also where they did all their animation so uh they would have some tie-ins there and uh some some welcome uh crossovers in fact i can remember i, I can remember this so distinctly that uh, looney tunes was a half hour show prime time uh, I think on on Thursday nights, and it was followed by The Rifleman, which was one of my favorite uh, shows. And you know, again, the, the uniqueness of The Rifleman is he wasn't a gunslinger; he used a rifle, and uh, he, he carried it like you would carry a gun or a, or a trombone, maybe. <laughs> so, but uh, I remember they would they would seamlessly move into each other. The the violence of a Looney Tunes cartoon, and there was a lot of it. Yeah, uh, you know whether we're, you know whether you're talking about uh, uh, Sylvester the Cat or uh, uh, Elmer Fudd, or, or you know they're they're always doing something with a gun or or smashing well, yeah, each other with a hammer. Two advantages: you're telling jokes, so that already disarms people from your violence. But then it's it's drawn, it's cartoon, so it's right. it's by nature past most people's radars. Yeah. Well, uh, maybe maybe it's time to, to close this up. But I, but I, I did want to bring this uh, example up, and just to get your your response, Mike. Why didn't a show like Cowboys and Aliens 
um, a movie, Cowboys and Aliens, be a, a successful hit or, or rekindling of the Western spirit? Um, I've, I've wondered. Maybe it just wasn't good enough, but um, in my opinion, it, it it was almost so deadpan. You got literally the title of the movie. <laughs> Yeah, and it didn't really call beyond itself in any way. And I mean, it kind of starts off, and you're getting a sort of a tropey western out of the first ten or twenty minutes of it. Other than the fact that he's got this weird thing on his arm that's clearly beyond the technology of the West. Um, but other than that, you're being, you know, he's in a small town. There's some, you know, loudmouth Paul Dano character who's causing trouble, and then Harrison Ford arrives, and he's angry because he's always angry. And, um, I don't know, it, it, for me, that movie kind of was a mess. I mean, I enjoyed it. I enjoyed the, the, the performances were good, but, you know, it just kind of didn't know what it was because then later it's an, it's an alien movie and they're, you know, he's sucked up into a pod and they're going to assimilate everyone. And you know, I was just going to say, may, maybe it had too many moving parts, so to speak, but it had Daniel Craig, Harrison Ford, John Favreau was the director, as I recall. Yeah. And, you know, he, he, he'd been successful. Um, I don't know, had he made Iron Man uh, by then? Yeah, you know, this so was after made, Iron Man. He, yeah, it was after Iron Man. He had made a couple of the uh, uh, Jumanji, I think he made, which I thought was a great film. Um, and so, to me... It, or no, it, he did uh, the space one, Zathra. Oh, Zathra, okay. Good enough. Which is better than Jumanji, I think. <laughs> <laughs> but it didn't have Robin Williams. No. Uh, <laughs> um, the uh, the trailer for it, I thought, was magnificent. I guess it just couldn't live up to the trailer that uh, preceded it. And, and that seemed to have a lot of trouble getting released as well. So, you know, they're working on it. But I, I actually did enjoy it uh, tremendously. So uh, there'll be a film festival someday, and I'll host it with... Uh, the Lone Ranger, Cowboys and Aliens, and uh, you know, and we'll we'll revive those. Coming soon will be Tarantino's latest take. He'll be doing the Hateful Eight, which will almost certainly be a spaghetti western celebration. Yeah, yeah. And then you've got a movie like uh, Dawn and the Planet of the Apes that has apes on horseback. And I remember some of the some of the tweets at that time that said things like apes. On horseback, I'm in. <laughs> <laughs> That's the the thrill of novelty for for modern people. Well, it's uh, it's been good to uh, reminisce and to have some retrospective, and uh, we'll uh, look forward to our next episode. And uh, I thank you for listening to this one. Thanks, Mike. Yeah, and uh, if you want to check out the show notes, for uh, we'll have some links um, to some things. Uh, you can head to sunriserobot.net slash sumpulp, and then if you add a slash two on the end, you can get straight to this episode and uh, check out our, some of our links and comments.